Welcome to the Financial Law Forum, a monthly podcast series focused on the intersection of financial services, the law, equal access to capital, and financial opportunities. I'm Tracy Davis, and with me is my partner at Seifarth Shaw, Tanya Esposito. We created this series for financial service professionals, both lawyers and non-lawyers, in the private, nonprofit, or government sectors who are interested and vested in the industry's technological transformation and pathways to becoming more inclusive of women and persons of color. Um, Today, we're going to focus on information risk management, ESG, and artificial intelligence uh, from a perspective of the boardroom. Um, The views and uh, opinions expressed here today are our own. Uh, They do not reflect the various institutions that we work for. Um, If uh, it's also should not be considered as legal advice. If you're looking for legal advice, then you should contact either Tanya or myself directly. So with that said, um, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about my background. I'm a commercial litigator. Um, and a corporate legal advisor, both to financial services um, institutions, as well as non-financial institutions, uh, which often find themselves grappling with the um, ever-changing legal landscape and risks resulting from the rise of fintech, data, privacy, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and um, an ESG-based approach to corporate governance. I grew in this space, interesting enough, after spending about 20 years concentrating on consumer fraud class action, particularly defense in the consumer finance space, and then before that working as a principal court attorney in the New York State Courts Commercial Division, where I spent six years handling novel business liability issues uh, in emerging areas of law. I currently serve as the chair of the New York City Bar Association's 150-year-old Judiciary Committee, and I serve as co-lead of the corporate governance subgroup of Seifarth Shaw's ESG Corporate Citizenship and Human Rights Advisory Group. So I'm going to turn it over to Tanya for her to share with us a bit about her background. Tanya? Sure. Thanks, Tracy. Um, So I am a partner in Cypher Shaw's uh, Washington, D.C. office. I co-chair the Consumer Financial Services Practice Group, uh, Consumer Consumer Financial Services Practice Group, yes, and that's a mouthful. Um, And, you know, I work primarily on matters in the mortgage, credit card, auto loan, student loan um, arena, um, doing everything from you know compliance work to government investigations, to class action litigation, to single plaintiff litigation, um, handling the alphabet soup of consumer, um, <clears throat> consumer law, if you will, both federal and state. Um, at the firm, I serve as the co-chair of the DC uh, Diversity and Inclusion Action Team. Um, and active at the national level as well. I also sit on the board of um, 
Trinity College, which is now known as Trinity Washington University here in DC, which is my alma mater. And um, I also sit on the board of uh, the Greater DC Diaper Bank, which is an organization that I <clears throat> think is doing amazing things and super excited to be working um, with them. Um, and I'm really, really excited about today and speaking with Agnes and, and partnering with Tracy. So looking forward to our conversation. So we just want to share with you a little bit about why we uh, created this podcast. Um, both Tanya and I uh, are very much involved in uh, increased diversity issues. Um, we are uh, leaders in that space. And one of the reasons that we thought this podcast was important was to not only explore the changes that are happening within the industry, but also to lend our voices um, where um, oftentimes women and minorities um, are, uh, may go unnoticed. So our goal is simply to just bring awareness um, to the, not only the changes that are happening, but also to the opportunities that those changes are creating within the industry. With that mouthful said, I've got a whole lot more to talk about in introducing um, our very, very special guest, Agnes Bundy-Scanlon. Agnes is a global leader in advising financial services firms on governance, corporate strategy, compliance, and risk management, particularly in matters uh, concerning uh, leadership development, management changes, data information and cybersecurity risk governance. She currently serves as the president of the Cambridge Group LLC and sits as an independent director on the boards of Truist Bank, New Tower Trust Company and Appfolio Inc. She previously served as Northeast Regional Director of Supervision Examinations at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau she served as a senior advisor for Trilent LLC. She also spent three years serving as chief compliance officer at TD Bank and also served in similar roles such as chief privacy officer, regulatory relations officer and executive, and as director of corporate community development for and as legal counsel to a number of other financial institutions including Bank of America and Fleet Boston Financial Group and other financial services firms. She is a founding board member of the International Association of Privacy Professional, otherwise known as IAPP, and currently lends her extensive expertise sitting on the boards of the Future of Privacy Forum and the Tech Law and Society, I'm sorry, the Tech Law and Security Program at the Washington College of Law, which also is Tanya and my alma mater. So WCL is present and uh, in perfect form today. Um, with that said, I'd just like to turn it over for Agnes to give just a few opening remarks. Agnes, it's so wonderful and we feel privileged to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, the topics that we're going to talk about today are ones that are 
uh, really true to my heart and ones that I've been working on for many years. Um, I've been accused of being a risk management guru and have been told that certain roles that I've had in the past are completely misunderstood, but I don't care. I love this area and love talking about this area. And I, I know we'll be talking about boards and whatnot. Earlier today, I was participating in a conversation about board materials. And I don't mind seeing thousands of pages of policies and procedures because I love it. Now, I don't say that that often, and I certainly won't say it to other board members. But for me, um, I'm enjoying this area very much and very happy to be able to take into consideration my experiences and share them with boards and board management. And I'm also learning a lot too, because I think of it as a quid pro quo, sort of a, a, an arena. Um, and with that, I continually try to educate myself. I've just finished on April Fool's Day, and this is not a joke, uh, a course a certification that I took with the University of uh, Cambridge on digital transformation. It was a topic that I heard last year. I, I knew about it, but really didn't know about it. And that sort of competitive edge came about, mm, I need to learn more about it. So I enrolled and just completed this course and very excited about that and very excited about hopefully sharing components of that with the boards as well as with my clients. And, and hopefully we'll have the advantage of you sharing that with us as well. Um, so we are very <laughs> much looking, looking that forward. That sounds amazing. To no, I'm just like so intrigued now. Absolutely. I'm with you. So um, as Agnes gave a prelude, we're going to be looking at, you know, this ever-changing horizon um, from the perspective of the boardroom. Um, and uh, with so much uh, transformation undergoing right now within the industry, Tanya, what you've had 20 years or, or more, uh, we don't want to date ourselves, but at least 20 years worth of experience in the industry. What, what, have you, what changes have you noticed? It's in that range for sure. I think I stopped counting, but that sounds about right. Um, you know, for me, I, I think one of the biggest sort of... Um, monumental shifts was the creation of the CFPB, of course, right? I mean, this was sort of the culmination of the consumer protection efforts and, um, you know, laws to sort of identify a singular agency that was going to take that on and, and sort of, you know, um, have its own agenda. And so that clearly had um, an incredible effect on uh, the industry, uh, my clients, um, having to sort of learn and grow as the agency learned and grows and evolves and continues to do that. So for me, I think that that's one piece of it. And the other um, is just technology and fintech generally. I mean, you know, I think we have um, <clears throat> clients and contacts who are in this space, uh, who are in the financial services space um, that are, you know, every day growing and changing and evolving and trying to um, adapt and, and figure out, you know, how technology can um, benefit business and, and how to be compliant and how to serve the marketplace um, that, you know, with products and services that are keeping in touch and in line with um, what its competitors are doing. And so that aspect of financial services has continued to grow and from my perspective by leaps and bounds and create 
new opportunities for me and new challenges for my clients. Um, so I would love to know from you, Agnes, from your perspective as someone who's um, held so many great positions in this industry and done so many fantastic things, what are some of the changes or evolutions in financial services that you think are most remarkable over the past 10, 20 or more years? You certainly touched on a few with my former agency, the CFPB, um, but, but even before that, thinking about sort of the bricks and mortars and the traditional banking role. Um, I started out my banking career working for uh, a bank where I was managing an $8.5 billion lending program, a lot at that time, uh, back in the uh, uh, early 1990s. And one of the things that we had to pay attention to was the opening and shutting of branches and how important was it was to increase that number. Fast forward into a couple of years ago, you have a Community Reinvestment Act um, examination, and part of it is concerned about how many branches you have, but it's more about really how are you getting the services out there? How are you really helping from a consumer protection perspective to provide services and opportunities for lending to your entire uh, uh, client base? That hasn't changed, but how you do it has. We're seeing so much more technology. I mentioned the digital format and um, innovativeness with companies and really looking for more ways to work with your clients, to get your clients to have the trust and interest in doing business with you and figuring out how to do it. And particularly in the past year, you know, we can't not mention COVID, uh, the big C, that really fast forward many companies' plans, programs to figure out a way to deal with the um, way of doing business, not just the remote work, but also how to serve their clients. You weren't opening up the branches, or if you were, there was all sorts of guidance about how you would walk outside to hand them documentation that probably had to be signed on that dotted line or figure out creative ways to get those loan applications signed and, and documented according to law so that you could process a loan. Think about the different governmental relief programs that the financial institutions had to quickly put in place to serve their clientele in a whole new manner. So it's been extraordinary. Um, what will be, I think, the most and biggest challenge is what is next, given what we have learned, how will we merge things of the past with how we have to function in the future? That to me will be a very fascinating uh, endeavor. And what will it mean for branches? In the fall of 2019, I participated in a board of directors meeting with the Atlanta Fed. There were many other directors from other financial institutions and they, the Fed talked about how JP Morgan Chase was opening up 40 new branches in Atlanta. I'm wondering if that's the same scenario or plan or strategy for 2021 with JP today. Uh, the world has changed. We constantly have to be in the present as well as think futuristically as much as we can. And I think that that's one of the things that we're, everyone is finding as a challenge 
and is a little bit new than how it was in the past in particular. Yeah, and that's that goes exactly to what my follow-up question was going to be, which is as this business model has shifted to technology, you know, where do you see the challenges or what do you perceive to be some of the more um, high-risk areas of, you know, regulation or, or compliance things? And, and I know there are many, many points that we could focus on, but just curious to know if there's one in particular that keeps you up at night. Well, I think that like just companies in general, there are different strategies, uh, different financial institutions, maybe they're card, credit card based, maybe they're more online, maybe they are more of a traditional ilk. It depends always on the, on the strategy of that organization as to the business model that will be most successful for them. So that's the first thing. It, it's, it, there's not a one-stop shopping. I think the second thing is that there are still always going to be those risk management and compliance concerns. Regulatory scrutiny is higher than ever. Um, and I, and I, I think we'll be talking about some predictions uh, later, but given where we are today um, in the United States, and I'll just deal with the United States regulations, there is such a consumer protection focus. So there's gonna be much more scrutiny by our legislative and our regulatory bodies who've already testified or who have said publicly about their mandate, which is to protect the consumer. Um, technology as a third area is obviously going to continue to play in force with regulators now trying to get up to speed with creating their own um, automation, their own technological uh, capabilities. When I was a regulator, I remember one of the banks I regulated um, had uh, begun a really hardcore uh, fintech operation and was the model at the time. Well, six years later, um, there are so many different thoughts about fintechs and I think financial institutions aren't necessarily seeing them as a competitor, but perhaps a partner, you know, how can we work together? So there's changing thoughts with how we must function. And then I think just lastly in general is, is the trends, the um, emerging topics, the violations of law, the repeated efforts that companies are going to have to make sure they still have in place those good compliance controls and culture of risk management. Um, some things will never change, but um, scrutiny on those things are going to be higher than ever. That's so interesting. And, and, and you raised a point that Tracy and I have actually discussed and written on before, and that is the disruptor transformed to collaborators role in the, in the financial, in the FinTech space rather. Um, and, you know, I've been fascinated by that because you can see how that relationship has kind of evolved over time and, and continues to evolve. And I do expect, as you said, to see, you know, a lot more um, focus on, on that space and those types of products. And so we're, we're following it um, every single day. But I know Tracy has some questions about information risk management. Well, well just back on the digital transformation and disruptors, um, sure. it's a competitive edge. Obviously, just like CRA, um, just companies in general are looking for more ways to be competitive. Um, it, it's, it's sort of like also the California law for privacy, where we're going to be seeing a lot of other states picking it up. Well, 
when one bank sees one company merging and partnering on fintech, they're going to know that. I mean, part of my job as a former compliance officer was to tell other lines of business what I knew about what was going on with peer institutions. And so as institutions are understanding the competitive edge and what others are doing, they're going to try and be more creative. Many institutions today have a whole line of business called digital, uh, and it's not part of consumer um, uh, uh, banking. It's a separate division that's separate from technology, um, separate from strategy, that is just looking at digital transformation, digital disruption, digital opportunities for that institution to forge ahead. Interesting. Um, and I just wanted to raise a point and then talk about um, that digital digitization that's happening and the cybersecurity risk threats um, and um, privacy issues that go along with that. But um, as far as even the collaboration between uh, fintechs and brick and mortar institutions, we're also seeing, and I think you mentioned, the collaboration between regulators and the tech technologists and them you know, almost having a symbiotic relationship in order to one, foster innovation within the uh, market, which, you know, obviously is always um, a goal, but um, a two, for it to bring themselves up to speed and to hopefully lend some guidance, and we're going to talk about that as well, to the very um, uh, ent entities that they're intended to regulate. So, you know, we're in a great deal of flux right now that, you know, um, maybe we're all self-educating where that leaves the consumer. Um, I think that's still the jury's out on that front. But given the fact that much of digitization relies on access to personal identifiable and other um, types of deep dive information on consumers um, and the rising threat uh, that cybersecurity places uh, as well as privacy issues place on that data. What are you seeing as um, the most effective approach um, either through the use of technology, um, effective vulnerability management or information governance um, in addressing this need for PII, but the abundance of threats that come with manipulating, storing, um, using um, that kind of information? I think all of that is important. And I think the whole area has come full circle. Um, I was one of the first uh, bank privacy officers. And at that time, we were just rushing to comply with Gramm-Leach-Bliley. And then you had the security data breaches. And then you had the annual conversation from the security officer before the board on what the institution was doing from a security perspective. Full circle today, you need to have that holistic and enterprise approach that we all started with, with privacy to ensure that we were beginning out appropriately and working with all the different lines of businesses. But it, it's even with a chief privacy officer or a data officer, you still need to have a holistic enterprise approach where there's a data architecture and the CISO, the chief technology officer is working with the privacy officer and the risk officer and the, the um, general counsel. 
and the marketing and the products and the data engineers. It, it's not a silo. We started out as a silo, uh, but it's not a silo. Um, my hashtag when I was a chief privacy officer was uh, privacy is everyone's business at fleet. Well, that's the hashtag today. Of course, you could probably have a bunch of other hashtags, but that's the hashtag today. It has to be an enterprise-wide approach. Um, you need to have technology, obviously good technology in place to help you do um, some of the various requirements for GDPR and CCPA, CCPA, as well as the Virginia law and CPRA. Um, you need to have good technology to capture that. Um, thinking about uh, a regulatory approach, regulators are very concerned when they see handwritten spreadsheets or things done from a manual perspective, because there's the obvious problem with making mistakes, you know, human error. That's why technology is key. And there are some great organizations that are helping companies do this, or they're sharing capabilities um, for smaller institutions to be able to get this done. I think um, regulators will be, you know, first the FTC and then the other regulators will really be even more engaged, but we have to first deal with our state regulators that are paying a lot of attention to this. Um, cybersecurity, cyber threats, um, data uh, breaches, they're going to happen. Uh, my daughter used to have a bib that said spit happens. Well, issues happen, but what you have to do internally is to try and do everything you can to mitigate. And if something happens, learn from it, educate your board. Hopefully the board is asking good questions about it. Uh, hopefully the board is paying attention to headlines on salient matters relating to the business of their corporation so that they'll come back into the boardroom and ask questions. But it is incumbent upon those in the organization, senior management, to bring these issues to the attention of the board and have a good discussion. Training is important. Training has come a long way. Um, training requirements internally have broadened. It's not just the technology committee or, or technology group or the, the risk group, but there are more people who must go through certified internal um, technology. So I, I think that it's coming along. Uh, who knows where it's going to go? And it's probably a never ending era. But um, there's certainly a lot more today and a lot more holistic and enterprise approaches. And that's a best practice. Um, if you don't have an enterprise approach, you'll get into more trouble than just spit happens. I, I, I can predict that. Um, <clears throat> as a follow up question, you uh, identified the need to make it a holistic approach. What tools do you often recommend to organizations to not silo out? I mean, it's very easy when you have a chief privacy officer, a chief technology officer, a chief information security officer, a general counsel's office, compliance, where each person, you know, wants to just make certain that their own individual wheelhouses aren't compromised. How do you create that holistic approach? I think it's tone from the top, tone from the management, tone from the middle, tone from the end. It's a constant conversation. Um, it's, it's with the CEO talking about the importance of it, putting out email memos. It's about the different business lines in their staff meetings or town meetings, 
talking about it and talking about the importance of it. It's about the different three heads, let's say, the technology officer, the privacy officer, uh, the CISO, going around to the different business lines and talking about the importance of it at their town meetings and discussions. It's about the constant conversation about it so that everyone understands the importance and also how they're judged on it. Um, everyone is accountable. Uh, it, it's also about understanding the three lines of defense and, and making sure that the business understands their accountability, that the second line, the control functions understand theirs, and then working with audit to understand their um, uh, uh, review and their audit perspective. So I believe that part of it is just inundating individuals within the organization, no matter how large or small, with the conversation about the importance of it. Um, we all know from just as a, an example, uh, last summer with um, the George Floyd uh, discussions and how many corporations talked about diversity and talked about DNI and talked about, it, it's that constant conversation for people to understand the importance of cybersecurity, information risk management, data, I, I put it all together and, and make sure that even at shareholder meetings, there's a, there's a conversation. And one of the things that I've noticed with um, uh, the upcoming shareholder season, when you look at the um, proxy statements and whatnot, the annual reports, I think institutions that talk about how many breaches they had or talked about some of their risk challenges are being transparent. And it's also an indication to me that it's a topic that is discussed internally. Right, right. Now, um, in uh, just working with clients in this space uh, very early on, it was very interesting that the tack was to disclose the fact that cyber was a risk that it was a risk that was not fully controllable and um, to make sure that it was a part of the conversation, how management was approaching um, the mitigation of cybersecurity threats. So I think that's very interesting that you point out um, in this season, shareholder season, that it's, it's worthwhile to see that it's discussed and disclosed in um, proxy statements <clears throat> and annual reports. Um, and also, also in earnings conversations, I've heard it on some earnings conversations. Interesting. And um, can you talk to us about the spin that comes up with this in, in talking about earnings? I mean, um, setting aside reserves or, you know, making certain that the cost benefit analysis is done when you're talking about corporate spend. I mean, you know, I can imagine that the conversation is pretty robust. It is, um, and I can't really talk about that from the standpoint of the earnings. Generally, when you have the CEO or the CFO giving their opening statement, that's when I've heard the, the, the fact that the organization takes this area very um, uh, uh, importantly and it thinks about it in terms of strategy, particularly if it was an organization that has had a Wall Street Journal or New York Times headline with cyber. Um, you almost mm -hmm. always will hear it in their consecutive earnings report <clears throat> or, or discussions. 
Understood, understood. Now, um, I just want to go back because you mentioned that there were some tools available to small and medium-sized companies to help them with mitigating and managing this risk. I don't know if there's any tools that you would like to share with, you know, those members of our audience that, you know, work for medium, small, medium-sized institutions. But um, it would be it would be uh, interesting if you had had any tidbits for, for them as well. I think uh, um, I think one company that is um, publicly talked about a lot, and I know that uh, they've been very supportive of the IAPP is One Trust. Um, uh, they have a lot of capabilities. Um, I'm not promoting anyone, but it is just for information, uh, an organization to take a look at. Um, the IAPP is another obvious good source of information on many types of products and services. Um, also, I would say that you know, your firm as well as other firms um, probably could be providing counsel to uh, clients on, on best services. But I would say that that's what I would go to. Um, you probably also know that a lot of the smaller companies look to a law firm, uh, perhaps such as yours, for seconded people to help them do their job. I remember when I was practicing law, one of our uh, associates was seconded to the New York Fed to help the Fed supplement their area. And that's always, I would recommend as a good approach to go to um, your firm and, and whatnot and see if there's someone that has the expertise. I know these days there are a lot of associates that are really watching all of the information coming out on privacy and on other areas from an emerging topic perspective. And they would be a great individual to help a small company because it's hard to have a risk officer who's doing perhaps legal, who's doing audit, which I think is a conflict, uh, which is, is doing compliance and privacy and everything. It, it's really hard to do that. And the scrutiny of, of that today is higher than ever and could be a problem, could be a regulatory problem for a company. Right. I love the yeah. suggestion about secundees. I actually was seconded to a financial services client after working, after doing work for them for many years. And it gave me such a perspective that I don't think I would have ever achieved independent of that um, experience, but more importantly, it allowed me then subsequently to sort of advise them, you know, from a more holistic approach. And um, I, I know that it's just, it's an arrangement that a lot of law firms um, make available. And, and I just, I love that suggestion because I think it helps to formulate strong um, lasting relationships, but more knowledgeable um, you know, professionals to eventually help through big issues like this when you know sort of the whole of a company and you have access to, um, you know, more than just one or two people that you might work with um, on a daily basis. So that's just- And also it, it helps start something. So you yeah. may not be able to hire someone, but maybe you can train someone as a seconded employee internally. So there, there really is a lot of effort to support it. I've done it also. And, and it, it's always great to get that learning, but it is good to provide the support. Right. The services. Um, and so just shifting somewhat, what guidelines or assistance do you think that the regulators are offering with their emerging approach to this area, and it is emerging. 
I think um, they have said that um, they have spent a lot of time and money educating itself. I think that they've done their own education and awareness of talking and they continue to talk with institutions to train them and, and teach them about some of the issues. They've hired um, data engineers, you know, non-economic people and, and a, a more financial um, economist from the standpoint of technology. They're bringing in statisticians and people that really can help them. And then they're starting to talk about what they're planning to do. Um, I know um, with the CFPB, for instance, at the beginning of March when Rohit Chopra um, testified before um, Congress, he mentioned the word privacy 11 times. Yes, I counted. And um, we all know that uh, the CFPB does have some privacy authority that it really hasn't exercised because it's been doing other things. But for him to come from the FTC, which has taken the lead uh, and has talked about this year, I think it was February, the acting um, chair of the FTC talked about her interest in privacy and data security. And from hit, for Rohit to come from there and to take that approach at the CFPB, I can only imagine what some of the future examinations are going to be. I know when I regulated um, there, we would have privacy as a topic in some of our uh, compliance management system examinations, but it was never a standalone. I can foresee standalone e examinations coming. So I think that there's an education uh, that, that's trajectory that the regulators are on. There's certainly an awareness Yes, they are concerned first with how people are doing relating to COVID, um, the health and the safety and the welfare and the results of that. But as new topics emerge in terms of areas of interest and impacting consumer, I can see privacy being one of them. Yeah. And again, when I say privacy, I'm talking about the whole gamut, cybersecurity no, no. And, and the whole thing. I, I share your view that it's the flip side of the same coin. I mean, you know, you cannot any longer talk about cyber and not talk about privacy. I mean, because the amount of data you have is how you mitigate some of the risk exposure. So I agree with you. Um, but uh, I think Tanya wanted to ask you a question, moving, shifting a little bit to um, uh, other areas of information risk management. Yeah, so I mean, we touched on some of this already, but I would be curious to know um, in terms of boardroom um, functionality, how have issues like cybersecurity and privacy and others um, impacted the way boards are implementing management or, or governing? I mean, clearly there's a focus there for purposes of making sure um, you know, it's communicated that it, it's part of a culture and, and it's top down and we want to have reserves and all that. But from a broader perspective, I mean, has it sort of shifted the way um, the board functions generally? There definitely has been a shift from, again, when uh, I remember reporting maybe annually to the board on privacy. And as I mentioned, the, the Title V um, clarification in Gramm-Leach-Wiley that required the, the chief information or chief security officer for talking about the security program 
to where it is now, where many companies have a technology committee or a cybersecurity committee or a committee that is basically focused on these issues, or there may be a joint committee of audit and risk that talk about these topics on a routine basis. So um, generally you're hearing at the committee and or the board level at each meeting on these topics, um, cybersecurity, the technology plan, the data plan, the, the data protection, the how we trust our data, how, how we want to engage in our clients and our customers so that they trust us, again, from a competitive uh, advantage and how we're handling their data. Um, there are the tabletop uh, uh, training that goes on. Usually there's um, annual or twice a year or a couple or more than that, maybe quarterly training that goes on for board members. Um, it used to be where you probably, uh, what is it, the National Association of Corporate Directors, you would take their cybersecurity training, let's just say, and or read the materials and then certify that you've done it. That was sometimes at most what institutions would do at the board level. It's much more now, it's that also. As a matter of fact, I, I did the training myself um, uh, out of sight, out of mind, uh, the fall of 2020, I got my certification um, from the NACD and I actually got a um, certification from Harvard from one of their courses on cybersecurity. Boards are bringing in experts in certain areas, including cybersecurity. I know um, in, on one of the boards that I'm on with a merger, we created a technology committee and we luckily had some expertise already on the board to manage it. And on the other hand, you don't have to be an expert. Uh, if you read the materials, if you have dealt with business, uh, as a board member, if you are reading the headlines, as you should as a board member, then you'll be able to ask those questions. And I always say, and, and I'm one who I'll ask any question at any time. I almost don't care how it comes off because I know I'm asking for clarification and understanding. And there's no question that is too sophomorific. I, I think if you don't ask the question, that's the problem. So I would say reading the materials that you get, you don't have to be an expert. It's great that there are some because they can help train you and there are people that you can talk with. But I think it's important to um, ask the right questions, to uh, uh, read the materials, to know what's going on in the headlines. I know last year with solar winds, if a company board was not asking questions about what that company, what the impact might be to that company, shame on those board members, and so on for major issues like that. So communication is key. I think so. Communication and, you know, taking the time to understand these hot topics as much as you can, because it's not, it for me, as I said, it it's not just um, going into the board meeting, but it's engaging. Uh, it, it's really having a bit of an understanding, or if you don't understand, ask the questions. A lot of times uh, on one of my boards, um, I'll read the material, we get it a week in advance, which is great. And if I have some questions, I may send an email to the, the person that's going to be doing the reporting, you know, always copying their manager if, if they aren't the one that's handling it. 
and ask some of the questions because no question I think is too small. It's when you don't ask the question that there's a problem. And you also wanna think about all the people that are putting work into these presentations. Um, you really don't want to have a presentation that is on a really hot topic, hot issue and emerging topic where there are no questions. I mean, I think it's incumbent upon us to put our thinking caps on and to engage. Agreed, agreed. And, and you know, it, it's incumbent upon each individual director to make certain that the other directors are educated as well. So to the extent that you have a question, it's important that that question gets, you know, funneled, funneled down as well as funneled back up so that you can collectively make the kind of informed decisions that are necessary to meet your obligations. Um, and also share information with each other. I mean, this is an inf information society and um, you know, you want to be careful about sending too much to each other because we get so many emails, but, you know, say that there's a hot topic that you just discussed in a risk committee or a NOM and Gov uh, committee meeting. It, it's, you know, it's great to, for me, when I receive them and, and ones that I think might be important, I share them too. It's about communication and education. Excellent point. So speaking of hot topics, let's shift to one of the hottest topics going right now, and that's um, ESG, or otherwise known as environmental, social, and governance. Um, with this new, I hate to say new, because it's not really so new, but um, with the rise of ESG, um, how are you seeing it impacting the financial services industry particularly? It's a topic that is constantly being discussed. Um, it's either discussed in the NOM and governance committee, maybe it's discussed in human resources and compensation, uh, depending upon what the issues may be. Uh, maybe there's a component that's discussed in audit. It doesn't matter as long as there are ongoing conversations about it. I think different components of ESG have taken on heightened um, uh, emergence or heightened conversations at different points. Again, back to last summer, uh, lots of conversations about the social uh, component from a diversity, from an equity, from an inclusion perspective. Uh, lots of conversations about that, ones that I don't think will diminish. I think that that will continue and should continue. Again, depending upon the industry, um, let's just say a manufacturing company or uh, a company, an, an oil and gas company, you might have more conversations about, about environmental. Uh, it, it just depends. Um, but I think governance is, is always going to be uh, another key topic. Um, I mentioned about how during this um, uh, uh, shareholder season, there's going to be more conversations. I do know uh, at the two, in 2020, um, Verizon Communications, um, MasterCard, as well as Sun Life at their annual shareholder meeting, they all specifically had different components to their uh, uh, proxy or annual report that talked about privacy and how important privacy was to them. So I do see the topic of privacy being an, an even a more important area than ever from an ESG perspective. 
um, the Global Reporting Initiative, which is known as GRI, uh, they come out and, and talk annually about different aspects of what should be included in annual reporting for corporations. Well, in 2016, they specifically had a section that dealt with privacy and how privacy is looked at and reviewed at certain organizations in terms of the breaches that I mentioned before, the numbers of, of leaks, the, the compromises, how they handle risk. So it's, it's not a new topic, as you said, I think um, the awareness and the emergence of the various components to it have heightened um, discussion and thought process. And it is something that a company should be talking about regularly, whether it's in committee, whether it's in full board, but regularly it should be a topic of, con of concern and, and questions and uh, work that's being done from a management perspective. And, and why? Why do you think that this conversation is happening now and so fervently? Um, I think because the, the change in the, the change in, I, I don't want to overuse the word environment, but the change in the world. I, I think the emergence of many of the different issues related to the E and the S and the G that have come about have risen to a point where it's become important to the major shareholders like BlackRock uh, and, and Vanguard and others, which you have to listen to their questions and, and, and what they're asking. They're asking more information about it and companies have to be responsive, let alone being a good corporate citizen. You know, I, I've come up from the arena of knowing what the regulations are and complying, but complying also from the standpoint of being a good corporate citizen. And I, and I guess, again, it's just one more competitive edge. A more competitive edge. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be interesting to know your perspective, Agnes, on how you think ESG will extend into the ecosystem um, in terms of, you know, will it be top down, vertical? Will it extend to, you know, one department over another? Um, do we think that it'll extend further to supply chain and third party vendors? Or what's your perspective on that? I think it's definitely going to extend everywhere. I, I think the, the conversation's not just at the board level or senior management, it's throughout the organization, probably a tagline that says ESG is everyone's business. Um, <laughs> right. But definitely with third parties and supply chain, I, I think it has to. Um, and, I, and I know in many organizations, it's already extended. And a little bit relatedly, but somewhat different, what, what, is, what do you think the impact and rise of ESG might have on diversity and, and inclusion in corporate leadership and in management and maybe even career opportunities and, and pay equity? I mean, how do you see the impact there? I think it's all tied in. Um, you're going to find um, DEI, uh, chief DEI officers conferring with the chief ethics officer and conferring with the chief um, sustain, sustainability officer, or ESG officer. And, and yes, many companies have all of those different titles uh, or they have a person that's handling that. And even boards, I've noticed that boards um, are creating various ESG or 
um, they'll say nominating governance and sustainability committee. So I think again, because of the internal communication and the collaboration, um, it's a conversation and it's a work effort that people are working on together. And tie into that is performance. Um, it, it probably will become, if it hasn't already, another performance category for managers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's sort of what you know I, I'm seeing as well. But um, what do you think about the rise of ESG combined with the rise of fintech? And do you think that those two things combined will ultimately result in an enhancement of access to capital for uh, persons of color, for women, for folks who have otherwise had difficulties accessing capital? I'm hopeful. I think so. I don't know if it will actually translate, but I'm hopeful. Um, I uh, am a, a I like to look at a variety of social media for a variety of reasons. And you kind of see the ebb and flow of Black Lives Matter or the importance of this, the importance of that. And don't forget, um, what, nine months, almost a year later, my, Black Lives Matter. So I think that there's great intention. Um, I think that um, from if I put on my board hat, it, it's incumbent upon me to continue to ask the questions that I was asking last summer of the board and of management to um, make sure that there's an understanding that these things are important. I also know that many boards have put together advisory uh, groups made up of individuals in their communities to see how their performance is and, and will be on this particular matter. I mean, that's done a lot uh, when I was talking about the uh, lending program that I first had uh, when I first started in banking, we had an advisory board to keep a check on how I was doing with that lending. Well, uh, the same principle is in many institutions today, particularly those who have public declared what they're planning on doing. Uh, and then again, from an annual reporting perspective, um, that's a question that they'll be asked, I'm sure, uh, not only on earnings calls, but during their shareholder meetings. It's a, it's a question that I know I'd be prepared to answer if I were the CEO or the CFO or the general counsel. Yeah, um, you raise a very important point um, with uh, the rise of ESG and uh, the shifting standards that are metrics that are involved in um, making those kinds of assessments. I think um, what tools for accountability are implemented are going to become critically important. So um, I think that's very interesting to know that uh, boards are taking that obligation very seriously by establishing you know, committees within the boards themselves to focus on, on those kinds of transparency and accountability issues. Um, Shifting uh, now to yet another hot topic, and there are so many in this space, uh, artificial intelligence. With the prevalent use of artificial intelligence in the financial services industry and the fact that um, there's very little uh, regulatory and legislative guidance at this point, what risk mitigation measures um, are your clients generally relying on in protecting against consumer law violations and data privacy claims? 
I, I this is a hot topic and you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of um, guidance. Um, there's just not a lot, but um, a couple of things that I think about and I, I was looking up, I keep my little certifications around me. I, I um, in 2019 took an MIT artificial intelligence certification course. Again, a topic that I knew about and thought about from the perspective of disparate treatment. Um, again, my CRA had and how people are treated, um, but to really wanna understand the underpinnings of it. And I think that I actually I've heard regulators again in their January conversations about how they foresee 2021 and whatnot, talk about these areas, talk about the fact that they themselves um, are doing more education uh, of themselves as well as the uh, policy people, their examiner people. But I think they have uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, they really have such a potential to improve our lives. But I think with the risk, and a lot of the risk have to do with how they're handled in an ethical matter. How do you decide what's ethical? I mean, there's a, there's a, um, uh, maybe a first glance and you know, your, your sort of detector that tells you, but what, what are the legalities of that? And I think a lot about um, the scales and what's the beneficial um, aspect of it from an organization. What's the impact to using this learning uh, from all sides? What's the revenue impact? What's the moral obligation or the moral morality of it from the standpoint of the treatment? And then what might be a violation? Uh, and, and that you know comes back to EOC and and um, you know uh, UDAP and fair lending and, and some of those considerations. So it, it's a big area and it's another area where you really need to make sure that the right people are talking with each other. And this is where the control functions like risk and compliance and uh, you know, your fair lending officer, let's just say, should be involved in the initial conversations when you're developing a new product or a new way to use um, AI or, or machine learning. This is when you need to really have that individual as part of the conversation to help you from the regulatory violation of, of it. But um, I've never wanted to be that control function that has automatically said no. Uh, you you wanna try to help the business line figure out a way to do something. So you're there to provide that advice and counsel and also how something might work. So, so that's part of the conversation too, but it's a huge area. There are huge benefits, but the risks need to be handled very gently uh, and at times very creatively. All right. Um, and speaking of handling the issues uh, involving AI creatively, um, as you probably know, the former director of the CFT, uh, the FTC's uh, Bureau of Consumer Protection issued some informal guidances uh, late last year. And he focused on transparency, on how the automated tools are used, what kinds of data is collected, the reasoning behind the algorithm, uh, algorithmic decision-making, you know, how the user can ensure that the decisions are fair and not discriminatory. Um, uh, there are also instances where we've seen the FTC uh, make it very clear that 
the uh, you know uh, Fair Credit Lending Act as well as the other Consumer Protection Acts are applicable. Um, how do you see what's being used now um, as it measures up with what's going actually going on in the industry? I, I, I think that um, one of the things that the that the regulators in general are getting better at is trying to understand the impact of some of these some of these areas on a financial institution, on a company. And I know that there was a group that um, spent a lot of time talking with the FTC before they published this. There's still concerns from the um, industry on the impact and, and what it means. I think it is a time where the FTC does want people to let them know uh, some of the challenges with it. And I think it's incumbent upon the industry, the various industries and not just financial institutions, not just other companies, but to really make sure that they are communicating back to the FTC and other regulators on how these are being used and the problems with some of their regulations. And I think that they're, because it's so new uh, and because there, there are just many ways to do good here that can have goodness for consumer protection even, that I think the FTC will be open to some of those concerns. I have a client that uh, did have a conversation with them. Um, gosh, this must've been maybe November timeframe about some of the challenges. And it was a good conversation. You know, a lot of times the regulators aren't going to uh, write an email to you and say that they agree with something, but um, there was an openness to listen. And I think that's something we are seeing more of on these emerging new topics is the openness to understand and listen the impact from the regulator's perspective. And that's something I have seen. I don't, it's not a closed door. I think it's an open door. Interesting. It's interesting to hear uh, that um, regulators are willing to collaborate. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to describe it. It's, I think it's critically important that they work to collaborate. Um, there are risks there um, that, and there are huge benefits. Um, and I know that there uh, has been talk about making certain that um, the technology, artificial intelligence isn't utilized in a vacuum. Um, and I think that that's one other critical aspect of any approach to using uh, the, uh, the technology, but mitigating the risks that come along with it. If it's not just you know, uh, utilized as a definitive determination when you're using automated, uh, automatic decision-making, um, then you've got a much better chance of getting it right. And I think most people want to get it right, um, you know. Uh, but with that, uh, I think we're going to look to hear what you forecast for 2021. What kind of predictions do you have as far as the uh, Biden administration? Well, I think that there are a lot of things that we uh, Americans want to be done within our country and, and, and move forward. However, I think that there are some areas first that we have to deal with and that the administration will deal with, like 
the pandemic and, and like um, the whole COVID and, and vaccination. Areas where I'm hoping that there will be some trajectory is of course privacy and a federal privacy uh, piece of legislation, which I don't anticipate until after we see what happens with the um, 2022 elections and depending upon where the control is, depending upon that, maybe we'll see something in 2023. Uh, I, I see instead many states by the end of this year having some sort of CCPA type of legislation. Um, I think anything that really has to deal with helping consumers um, from affordability of housing to um, get jobs, uh, again, um, the responses of COVID and how it's impacting consumers, I think that will be the area of uh, concern. I do think from a regulatory perspective, we're going to see more enforcement from some of our regulators. I think that, um, I mean, I know how long it takes to investigate uh, an issue with a company. And I think that there has been a hold on some of those matters, which now uh, with the support uh, perhaps of um, people internally or at the higher levels or, or even externally, I think we're gonna see more enforcement in, in many different areas that will relate to, again, consumer protection, fair lending, UDAP, um, uh, mortgage, uh, uh, again, some of those areas. Um, litigation uh, will be in those areas also, uh, uh, as well as bankruptcy and, and, and areas like that. But I think so much of what we're going to see will stem from the experiences that we all had uh, in 2020 with the pandemic. And then there'll be other issues that are tacked on there. And there's so many of them and they, there is a trickle down effect. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so interesting because I agree that the umbrella is so broad and there's so many products that cut across, you know, a number of spaces where there's um, the likelihood, you know, for there to be issues that are COVID related and others that have just been out there before COVID. So um, we will have to wait and see how that unfolds. But oh, Agnes, we'd be interested to know from you based on your own incredible career and trajectory, how you would advise someone who endeavors to follow in your footsteps and serve in corporate governance or be a leader in regulatory and compliance. Um, what advice would you give someone who, who wants to do that and someone who's interested in serving as an independent director? I think um, that for me, it's always been a case of picking up additional skills and services. I, I'm just so interested in learning and, and gaining more expertise in various areas and taking risks sometimes um, and being patient. Uh, my younger self was not. And so I've learned to be a little bit patient with maybe that promotion that's not coming as quick as I would like or that next job, but patience. And I think in terms of board service, for me, it was really helpful to serve on not-for-profit boards. I mean, I, I was um, on my alma mater's board for nine and a half years. I was a trustee there, trustee at another uh, university board. And um, at my daughter's school, I was on their board. And in each, I had leadership roles 
And it was discussing that during my interview for the first corporate job that I was told later, having that kind of leadership experience at a not-for-profit board. And it really, in my view, doesn't matter what that board is. It's really your passion, your um, reputation as a good board member, someone who shows up and who is engaged and involved and having a leadership role of perhaps chairing a committee um, or um, being a vice chair of the board that that can be very helpful. And then of course you begin to communicate your interest uh, on being uh, on a board. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, it's come to that time where we have to close out and thank you for spending your time Uh, with your extraordinarily busy schedule to speak with us about these really hot topics that the industry is confronting. So just our deepest thanks for you spending the time and sharing your knowledge and expertise. And um, we'll hope to have you again when another hot topic comes up as they always do. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Really great to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Please join me for our next episode where we will discuss the recent enactment of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 and the establishment of the Emergency Capital Investment Program. Look forward to seeing you all then. We'd like to thank our partners at Cypress Shaw for their support, the marketing team, and Xavier Dudas for helping us produce this podcast series. Thank you.